Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Greg Coles joins me for today's conversation. Greg is a writer, speaker, and academic researcher who's done important work in the field of rhetorics of marginality, focusing on the impact of language on marginalized groups. He's part of the collaborative leadership team at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Greg is the author of several books, including his latest, No Longer Strangers. In this episode, Greg and I talk about his journey as a gay Christ follower who has chosen to honor God through a life of celibacy. He also walks us through some helpful terminology related to sexuality and gender and discusses how the language we use can either help or hurt our relationships and ministry efforts. Greg leaves us with some wise and vital advice for ministering to LGBTQ people. It's so incredibly helpful, so please join me now in my conversation with Greg Coles. Gregory, thank you for joining us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure to be here with you. Now, now Greg, could you um, share a little bit about your journey for us? For those who may not know you or know your story, can you just kind of give us a bit of your background and the journey that God has had you on? Yeah. So I, I grew up uh, in, a, in a Christian family. I grew up in the church, which means that I grew up going to youth group. And uh, I remember uh, as I was hitting puberty, you know, uh, I, I was hitting that time in youth group where they would get the boys and the girls together um, and, and they would be like, look, boys, we know what you're going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. Uh, and, and I was like, oh, okie dokie, you know, I, I will not look at any pictures of naked women. And I discovered that I was actually really remarkably good at not looking at pictures of <laughs> naked women, uh, which, which made me feel for a period of time, like I was like the holiest 12 year old in the world. I was like, they told me all the boys would struggle with this, but I am not struggling with it. I think it's just because I love Jesus so much. 
and uh, it, it, it took me a little while uh, to, to recognize that I, I, I was not, in fact, the holiest 12-year-old in the world, that I did have an experience of sexuality. It just wasn't the one that I had been sort of trained and braced um, by my church community to expect. Um, and, and very quickly, I went from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old mm. in the world, the one who was so awful that nobody had even bothered to warn me that somebody like me could exist. And, and so that launched a season for me of trying to wrestle with uh, what narrative I was then supposed to inhabit, uh, what kind of story somebody like me was able to tell. And there were, there were two predominant narratives that I was aware of uh, in, in Christian spaces at the time for somebody who was attracted to the same sex and wanting to follow Jesus. Um, one was uh, the ex-gay narrative that said, you know, you, you pray, uh, you trust Jesus, you figure out what has gone wrong in your upbringing. And then over the course of time, as you follow God obediently, you become straight and you pursue a heterosexual marriage. That was one narrative I was familiar with. And the other was the, the gay affirming narrative that said, revisit the text, uh, tr figure out ways in which the Bible has been misunderstood. Uh, and then when you do that work, then you'll feel comfortable pursuing a uh, relationship with somebody of the same sex. Uh, so I wrestled with each of those narratives in turn. Um, first spent a number of years through middle school and high school and college praying and trusting Jesus that I would eventually become straight. Um, and when eventually I realized, you know, I'm growing in my faith, I'm falling more deeply in love with Jesus, but it is not making me any more attracted to the opposite sex. Um, then I began to wrestle with scripture and to ask, does, th does this thing really say uh, what I've heard that it says? Uh, and, and ultimately came to this, this sort of awkward middle space that was neither of the narratives that I had heard previously, um, where I concluded, I think I'm going to continue experiencing attraction to the same sex. I don't think that's something that Jesus intends to change, at least not in the foreseeable future. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I do still believe uh, that I'm called to steward my sexuality either in a uh, monogamous opposite sex marriage or in celibacy. And so if I'm not drawn to marriage, I think I'm called to be celibate. And so that's where I've been uh, in the years since reaching that conclusion with varying degrees of delight or uncertainty or <laughs> angst along the way. Uh, but Jesus has been remarkably good through it all. Yeah, that's fascinating, Greg. And um, I imagine as as you saw, as you said, these two big narratives, right? And, and, and you thought it was kind of an either or possibility. But then as you grew in Christ, as you really sought um, the face of God, you saw kind of this middle way, which is a very uh, Jesus thing, right? It's, it's to, is to see that, that middle way. Um, was that something that you felt like was just completely fresh, completely new? I mean, were you thinking like, why why wasn't anyone talking about this other other way? I mean, how, how did you wrestle with that reality of it? I think I had a vague sense that maybe one or two other human beings in the course of human history might have done something <laughs> like that. Uh, I, I remember having read uh, one or two books that, that would make reference to or have a quick mention of here was somebody who was exclusively attracted to the same sex their whole life and decided to be celibate as a result. Um, and I, one really formative book for me uh, was uh, Dr. Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, uh, which was published, I believe, in 2010 and was kind of in the 
uh, in the more recent evangelical scene was sort of the one book that existed on the topic. So I was like, well, so we've got at least one, at least one precedent in, in Dr. Hill. Uh, but certainly when I looked at the community around me, I, I wasn't seeing anybody else telling a similar story. And so I thought, you know, I may not be the only one, but I think I'm one of a very few. Um, that perception has changed in, in, the, in the years since I've started being more vocal and discovered, actually, you know, there, there are perhaps a few more of us than I had given us credit for. Excellent. Now, now, what advice would you give to a young person who who is experiencing an attraction to the same sex or wrestling with their gender identity? I think that there are two things primarily that I would say. Uh, the first is um, that it's it's really valuable uh, to to find somebody or a few people uh, who you can be totally honest with about that experience. Um, I certainly don't think that means you need to come out broadly to to everybody necessarily, uh, but there's something tremendously important I think about the way in which we as human beings are created to experience the love of God uh, through other people. Um, that, that when God says it's not good for the human being to be alone, part of what he means is that we're designed to recognize how beloved we are by God, by, by hearing how beloved we are by the, by the family of God that has been put around us. Uh, and so I think it's incredibly spiritually important uh, to be able to process your experience with somebody who can who can lavish on you the love of God as you sort of uh, journey and figure out what's next for you. Uh, and, and the second thing I would say is that um, as you as you wrestle through the question of what does it look like for my life uh, to going forward, how can I follow Jesus? Um, that it, it's much more important to make the following of Jesus the primary thing than to insist to yourself, here's how I want this story to end. I insist that I will only end up married someday. That is the only ending I will allow. Um, to the degree you decide for yourself how the story has to end, or you allow somebody else to dictate to you how the story has to end, and your primary goal is something other than I will continue to be in love with Jesus. I will continue to follow Jesus no matter where he leads me. I think you're set up for some kind of disappointment or possibly for some kind of idolatry that says the thing I'm really prioritizing here is the pursuit of marriage. The thing I'm really prioritizing here is my good evangelical reputation. Um, and, you know, as, as delightful as any of those things might be, uh, all of them pale in comparison to the delight of actually knowing and following the person of Jesus. Yeah, Greg, it's it's um, it's fascinating to hear you as, as you're kind of sharing your story and talking through that, because I think one of the things that people struggle with so often is this idea that, and I'm not just talking people who, who have, uh, you know, attracted to the same sex, but but their friends or their family members, um, or just, you know, the, the church at large. There are people who are like, well, that's just not not fair you know that's just that's that's sad you know there, there's this kind of you know if, if that's the, the the attraction that they feel innately um that they can never you know have that type of a relationship and i, th I think that speaks to a, um kind of a larger thing that we see kind of in in the the christian community oftentimes is that you know single christians uh, regardless of their sexual identity single christians often feel as though um, a single life could not possibly be as rich and as fulfilling, you know, as, as it would be with a romantic partner. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about that, 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 that mindset and how you've kind of 
um, process through that, but also how that can help um, other people, both those you know who might um, struggle with sexual identity and those who don't, who are looking at their their friends or people they care about who are struggling. You know how how can we process this this um, you know gr- grasping onto you know a full life is only a full life if there's you know a romantic partner involved yeah one of the things that i find really fascinating about christian weddings and don't get me wrong i love a good christian wedding i i get all sentimental and emotional almost every time uh but one of the things that's fascinating about the the way these weddings are carried out uh, is that they often they will often read verses uh, like uh, like the passage from First Corinthians chapter thirteen, you know, the love passage, and the love is patient, love is kind, and 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 the impression that they will give, and sometimes what the pastor will will say is that this is the the best and truest and and pinnacle form of of human love that we can experience is is what we're witnessing right now uh, in, in marriage. And and that narrative, I think I think marriage is beautiful in a very distinctive kind of way. Um, I, but to suggest that the only way to reach the best and truest form of human love that you can get to on earth is to be married um, is dangerous, I think, because it tells those of us whose vocation is a vocation of singleness um, that we will always in some way be deficient, that we will always be lacking the truly 1 Corinthians 13-ish kind of love. And, and I think another thing that it does, perhaps somewhat dangerously, is it, it takes some people who perhaps were not really called into marriage, and it suggests to them, you know, as long as you want to be fully human, if you really want to know what love is all about, you might as well just funnel yourself off into, into marriage anyway. Uh, I've sometimes thought that it would be fascinating instead of having 1 Corinthians 13 read at weddings to have 1 Corinthians chapter 7 read at weddings where the Apostle Paul says uh, the single person is concerned with the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married person is concerned with the things of the world and how to please their spouse. So their interests are divided. So then the one who marries does right. But the one who does not marry does better. Uh, you know, sometimes I just feel like, you know, like put that in your pipe and smoke it. married people. And, and I think, again, the, the point is not to to say that in, in elevating singleness that we need to denigrate marriage. Um, but the point is rather that we need to honor both of these callings as as distinct callings. Um, that when when Jesus calls somebody either into singleness or into marriage, he's calling them to. Uh, he's calling them to contribute to the world in a particular kind of way to be part of the advance of the kingdom of God in a specific purpose that he has for them. And to take either one of those vocations as a sort of a default and say, well, unless you're really special, super spiritual, uh, you should just sort of default funnel your selfishness into this one vocation. Uh, What we end up doing is uh, making people who don't go in that direction feel bad for missing out. Uh, and and perhaps guiding some people in that direction who God might want to call elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's very interesting, Greg. As, as you share that, and thank you for that because I think that helps uh, frame some things. And especially, you know, I'm thinking of again those people who um, they might be married, and they look at at someone who has chosen a life of celibacy, and it's almost like they extend pity toward them, right? 
which is basically saying, you know, is basically doing a disservice, as you've said, because you're basically saying, well, your life will never be able to achieve, you know, the, a fullness or, or you know, whatever that my life is. And so there's this, and, and that's, that's, um, that's something we need to be careful about um, because it's not honoring that the other person who, who is in that lifestyle and in, in, uh, has chosen that vocation and who's trying to honor God and be obedient to God in the midst of all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it, it seems significant to me that when Jesus is describing the process of discipleship, he says, if anybody wants to come after me, uh, let them take up their cross and, and follow me. Uh, I think a, a lot of us, especially in Western 21st century evangelicalism, uh, there's a tendency for us to not think of taking up one's cross as a particularly weighty task hmm. um, to say, oh, the, the default, the baseline of our lives ought to be ease and comfort and safety. It ought to be 2.3 children in perfect <laughs> physical and mental and spiritual health, it, you know, with good dental hygiene. It, it ought to be all these things, you know, and, and the sort of cross that we envision is like, I'll put an extra 20 in the offering plate. Like, <laughs> I will put up with the occasional irritation at work. When, when I think in reality, um, if, if, if it's really Jesus that we're following, um, then it needs to be true that the story that we tell about our lives uh, is one in which we're making radical kinds of choices that only make sense through the lens of Jesus. Mm. There, there are ways in which my life as a single person uh, only makes sense, is only full of joy and community and belonging and family because I can claim with confidence the family of God. And so it's impossible for me to tell the story of why singleness can be beautiful without talking about who Jesus is. Um, and I think too often we we miss out on the opportunity to say, what is the way in which my life, you know, may, maybe you're married, maybe you're single, um, but what is the way in which my life is markedly different, in which I am doing things that I would not have otherwise chosen to do because I trust that the promises of Jesus are true and that it's actually worth giving something up in order to follow him. Uh, I think in, in a way, I, I think it's a, it's a great gift to be, to be given a constant reminder of your mm. need for Jesus. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Good. Excellent. Now in, in your book, No Longer Strangers, you say, uh, quote, when I came out as a celibate gay Christian, I found I didn't fit into the church as easily as I used to, right? Um, could you unpack that a little bit for us? How has the church been most loving towards you in your journey? And then what are areas that the church could grow in? The ways that the church has been loving to me, uh, primarily uh, when, when folks have been really effectively loving to me, uh, it has meant that the, that the, the knowledge of my experience of sexuality uh, only, only to the degree it changes their view of me at all, uh, it only inspires people to love me yet better, to come alongside me more, to say, now that we understand with even more clarity precisely why it is that you feel called to celibacy, let us all the more take on the burden of collectively as the family of God providing a family for you that you will not be eking out for yourself. Um, and, and that has been really beautiful. I think uh, in addition to that, I would say, uh, it's it's beautiful and encouraging when folks are able to recognize uh, the way in which 
my experience of sexuality can create a kind of a complicated relationship uh, with uh, Christian spaces and with the world at large, because there are many people in both of those camps uh, who would find my story as something objectionable uh, and wish to, to lob proverbial grenades at me accordingly. Uh, for them to say, recognizing that that might happen to you, uh, we're going to take on the, the burden of uh, doing some of the defense for you. Um, we're going to respond to people on your behalf so that you're not stuck in self-defense mode constantly. Mm. Uh, because certainly one of the things I've noticed in my own journey has been that to have your soul constantly be in self-defense mode, uh, to constantly be trying to convince other people that you do in fact love Jesus is sort of an unconstructive space because it takes away energy that would be better invested in actually loving Jesus, in right. actually following Jesus. And so for people to be willing to step into that conversation and to say, uh, how can I defend you from some of the attack that I know you're going to receive uh, so that you can then have more energy to invest in the things that God is calling you to do. Uh, those things have been really helpful. As to the the less helpful things or some of the ways in which the, the fit in Christian spaces has been difficult, uh, certainly one thing uh, that has been a challenge for folks is uh, there, there are people who would who would hear my story and who would assume that when I talk about being gay or when I talk about experiencing ongoing attraction to the same sex, who would assume that that is always already uh, a, a sinful thing, that, mm. that the mere experience of having the capacity to be attracted to the same sex is something that I uh, should understand as sin and need to repent of the capacity to experience temptation. Uh, that has proven unhelpful for me in my own journey, uh, because Lord knows there's lots of real genuine repenting that I need to do. Um, <laughs> and it becomes a distraction to be told that something that, that, that is not, that right. is not my sin is my sin because it, it diverts my attention away from where I do indeed need to, uh, in, invite in the restorative work of Jesus, um, uh, I think another another point of tension uh, for some folks has been uh, difficulty around terminology. Um, uh, you know, folks folks who would say we think it's important for your discipleship that you not use the word gay. We would instead prefer that you use the word same sex attracted. Um, or we don't even think it's good that you use the term same sex attracted. You should just say something like someone who struggles with attraction to the same sex. We would only accept that kind of framing. <laughs> uh, and, and people have, I think, some thoughtful reasons for having concerns about different forms of terminology. But the impact of those arguments on me uh, has largely been, again, that it, it diverts my focus away from what I want my focus to be, which is figuring out what it looks like to steward my experience of sexuality in celibacy in a way that honors Jesus. And it gets me constantly focused on, okay, what language am I using? Who am I making happy? Who am I making unhappy? Uh, which I think is relatively low on Jesus' priority list uh, in comparison to the question of what it looks like for me to actually be obedient to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And Greg, um, you, you bring up language, which is, I think, an important uh, piece of this conversation. And you've done a lot of professional work, academic research um, on how language impacts marginalized groups, um, whether it's pronoun usage or, you know, basic terminology. Language could sometimes 
and, and we find this, I think, more and more, be a very complex world to navigate, right? Um, a descriptor that just a few years ago may have been seen as acceptable might today be considered insensitive or possibly even offensive. And it seems like things are, are changing um, so, so rapidly. Uh, as Christ followers, we want to be able to build relationships. We want to be able to effectively minister, but language can, can easily trip us up. Um, when, when we don't fully understand and, and you know, the, the unfamiliarity with, with some different terms. Now, many people um, are hearing terms being used uh, more regularly now that are just completely unfamiliar. Right, so um, some some listening in might be unfamiliar with terms like gender fluidity or intersex, binary, pansexual, uh, sex assigned at birth. You know that that phrase. Um, so I know this is a, a big ask, but I'm asking you because <laughs> you spend your professional life in in this area, um, and you've done the research in this area. Can you take a little time? Um, and help us better understand some of the current terminology um, related to the LGBTQ community in, in conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I will say I'm I'm grateful for the complexity of language because you know it keeps me at a job. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, I'll, I'll offer I'll offer two sort of preliminary thoughts before I launch into some more nitty gritty specifics. Um, uh, th- the first is. Uh, I think there can be there can be a fear of entering into conversation around LGBTQ questions precisely because terminology is complicated. We're aware that uh, we might offend somebody, we might break a taboo that we didn't realize was a taboo. And well, I think it's appropriate for us to want to be cautious. Uh, I, I think we can also recognize that in most cases, if you're speaking in the context of relationship and you say to the person, with whom you are in relationship, hey, I wanna use language in a way that honors you. I might get it wrong because I don't know everything. Please help me understand what words would honor you. Please help me understand what words don't honor you. Please correct me when I get it wrong. Uh, I have rarely known of a case where somebody has said that to a person with whom they're in relationship uh, and then has damaged the relationship as a result of a misstep. Yeah, that's um, good. I do, however, know of people who say, I am confident that I have everything already correct in the realm of terminology. I am confident that I will wound no one who then go out and speak willy nilly um, <laughs> and do, I think, some great relational damage. So, so the posture of humility, the posture of speaking out of relationship in a way and by out of relationship, I mean, in the context of relationship right. uh, in, in a way that that invites people to continue helping you learn uh, is, I think, it's a safe posture to be in, even if you don't always say everything right along the way. That's good. Um, so, so that's preliminary thought number one. Preliminary thought number two uh, is, I think our motivation as people who enter into this conversation about language, uh, we can we can join with uh, the Apostle Paul in saying. Uh, you know, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. I became all things to all people in order that by all means possible, I might I might win some. Uh, there's there's uh, there's a sense within Paul's approach there where he's saying, I want to be as thoughtful as I can mm. in entering into conversation with different groups of people in a way that they are maximally likely to understand. 
in a way that's maximally likely to help that group of people encounter the love of Jesus. Um, that I'm less interested in saying, here's how I would like to have the conversation. Here's how I would like to do things. And then going out and imposing that preference onto other communities. But I'm instead willing to say, let me learn enough about this community to understand what words, what approaches are going to be maximally constructive in helping them understand who Jesus really is. So I think if we carry that posture into our study of language, then we're much better equipped to understand why this conversation about language can matter to the heart of God. That's excellent. That's excellent. Okay, so let's dive into some of that terminology. <laughs> okay, so with those preliminaries <laughs> right, in right. mind, um, uh, so so first of all, uh, it's helpful to understand uh, just the term LGBTQ, uh, which we've already used some in this conversation, uh, stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, um, and then sometimes there's a plus after mm -hmm. it or some additional letters. Um, lesbian, gay, and bisexual are all references to uh, sexual orientation. In other words, the question of who you are attracted to uh, is at play in those three words. Uh, transgender, on the other hand, uh, is unrelated to sexual orientation and is all about gender identity. So this is the question of how I perceive myself internally. Um, do I perceive myself as being male or female or something else that is not male or female? Uh, the fact that terms about sexual orientation and terms about gender identity all end up in the same long acronym uh, can be useful at times because there are aspects of those experiences that are similar. There are ways in which groups of people who fit into both of those camps have crossover with one another uh, culturally, uh, politically, relationally, so on and so forth. Um, but there are also ways in which putting all those things into the same acronym uh, can tend to uh, confuse our understanding of the ways in which those experiences are dif uh, different from one another. So sometimes if I, if I refer to myself as uh, being gay and people will be like, oh, so about your gender identity, you don't understand that you're a man. And it's like, no, 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 that, that would be if I were transgender. That's a, that's a different conversation. So it's good to be aware of that distinction. Uh, when we get to the Q, the queer, uh, this is where I think a lot of folks, especially folks who are older and have been uh, hearing these words for longer, a lot of people will remember the term queer as a derogatory term, uh, as, as something that, that they know they should not say because it's offensive. Uh, and, and this is a case where uh, language in recent years has undergone uh, what linguists call reclamation. Um, in other words, where, where a group of people takes a word that has been used to derogate them, to put them down historically, and says, you know what, we're actually going to reclaim this word as mm. a term of pride. Um, and uh, sometimes, a long time after that happens, we start to forget that the term was ever derogatory in the first place. Uh, so for instance, uh, the word black um, to refer to uh, African-American uh, and other uh, African-descended communities uh, was at one time a derogatory term. It was not the polite term. The polite term was colored, which is how we got the name of organizations like the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, but there's this shift that happens uh, in the 60s where the Black community starts to say, you know what? All this word Black says about us is that we have dark skin. And we don't mind that fact. 
we're actually, we're going to start uh, arts movements that say black is beautiful and we're going to claim our blackness as a term of pride. And so now societally, we've gotten by and large to the point where we've stopped seeing black as a derogatory term. Why? Because people started choosing it for themselves and applying it to themselves. A similar thing happens a few decades later with the term queer. So queer is a word that gets used to derogate both sexual minorities, so uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual folks, and so on, uh, and gender minorities, the, the T, the transgender of the LGBTQ, it gets used to derogate all of those people uh, by saying that they are, they are queer, they are in some way weird outside of the norm. Um, and so that group of people starts to take that term and say, what if we don't mind that we're outside of the norm? What if we're in fact perfectly happy to be outside the norm? Uh, and so they begin to claim that term for themselves. Uh, and, uh, and, and so some people now prefer to identify themselves as queer, um, by which they, they may be making reference to their experience of sexual orientation. They could possibly be making reference to their experience of gender identity, or maybe some of both. Um, but what they mean by and large is I am in some way not the heterosexual and cisgender that is having a sense of my gender that matches my biological sex or my sex assigned at birth. Again, those two terms we can get to later. Um, uh, I, I'm not heterosexual and cisgender. I'm something other than what the norm of society expects me to be, and I am okay with that. Um, so you'll see, especially younger people uh, who, whose preferred term for themselves is queer. Um, you will also see some older folks uh, uh, in the LGBTQ community um, who still consider the term queer offensive uh, and so certainly wouldn't prefer to have it used about themselves are uncomfortable even using it about other folks. And so this is one of those cases where knowing the linguistic landscape doesn't give you the confidence to say, I will go forth and use this term with the confidence <laughs> that everyone will like it all the time. Um, but anytime we get too deep into language, we start to recognize, okay, there's going to be exceptions here. There's going to be nuances here. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then uh, moving on through that, through the, the, the letters that can follow there, uh, sometimes I for intersex will get put into that umbrella. And intersex refers neither to sexual orientation nor to gender identity, um, but to uh, the, uh, the biological uh, system um, uh, that would typically mark somebody as male or female. There are some uh, conditions uh, in which somebody doesn't have all of the typical markers of maleness or femaleness. And so that boundary can get drawn broadly enough to include about 1% of the population, or it can get drawn much more narrowly than that. But those uh, folks are intersex and will sometimes get clumped into that category. Uh, there's an A, sometimes for ally, which just means people who are on board, but often also asexual, uh, which would be somebody uh, who doesn't experience uh, sexual attraction generally. They might still experience romantic attraction. They might still choose to enter into sexual relationships as an expression of their romantic attraction, but their natural attraction toward people is not sexual in nature. Um, you've got a P for pansexual, typically, um, and a pansexual uh, is somebody whose sexual attraction uh, is 
closely enough attached to their romantic attraction and could go in any or all direction. The pan here meaning all, you know, it's kind of all over the place. Um, so it just means I could be sexually attracted to anybody that I decide I am romantically attracted to. Um, and that may change over the course of time. Um, sometimes you'll see a two, which stands for two spirit, uh, which is a term that some uh, native uh, and indigenous communities uh, will use to describe a kind of non-normative experience of sexuality or gender. Um, and, then, uh, and then of course you have a whole host of gender related terms um, uh, because you have transgender, uh, which often refers to a cross-sex identification. Uh, so somebody who uh, was, was born uh, in, in one kind of body and then says, I actually, you know, though, though I came out with male parts, um, I, I would identify myself as female. Um, and here at this point in the conversation, we must pause for a little side note that says the way that you describe somebody's sex at the time they are born often varies depending on your ideological commitments. Hmm. Um, so uh, some people will use the term biological sex and be very comfortable with that. Um, or uh, psychologists will often use uh, natal sex um, uh, to describe, you know, the, the, the sex at birth or the sex in the womb. Um, uh, however, uh, some trans affirming communities prefer terms like sex assigned at birth. Um, and the reason they wanna talk about sex as being assigned at birth uh, is that they wanna recognize, for instance, uh, that the existence of intersex people, people who come out with somewhat ambiguous genitalia or whose genitalia don't match their chromosomes or who in other ways don't neatly fit in the two camps, um, that there's sometimes some kind of designation that happens uh, by a medical professional early on to say, well, there's a micro penis here. Um, should we leave it and say that this person is male or should we chop it off and say that this person is female? Uh, and so wanting to recognize that fact that, that sex is not always as, as tidy and clean cut, um, they, they might use the term sex assigned at birth. So you'll hear that term floating around. Um, if this all feels like you're drinking out of a linguistic fire hose, um, <laughs> Don't don't worry. Um, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a couple more gender related terms, and then we'll okay. take a breath, and we can we can move from there. Um, uh, gender queer. Um, I, I said before that the term queer uh, can refer to sexual orientation and or to gender identity. Um, often, when people use it just by itself, and you need to take a guess, um, uh, you could probably guess that the thing they're primarily referring to is sexual orientation. Uh, not that you need to guess, you know, you could just ask for more information if you need more information. Um, but often when somebody who has uh, a self-understanding of their gender um, that is that is not normal and, and they want to use the, the word queer for that, um, they might use the term gender queer, which specifically means I'm queer, I'm outside of the norm with respect to my experience of my gender identity. Um, and, and that often could be uh, an experience of uh, being what's called non-binary. Um, so I said before, uh, you could have a transgender male, somebody who uh, had uh, was assigned female at birth or was biologically female and then identifies as male. You could have a transgender female uh, who assigned male or uh, biological sex male, but identifies as female. 
And then you could have somebody who identifies as non-binary, meaning they don't identify themselves as male or female, but they would think of themselves as being uh, something different from or between uh, the first two camps. And so those folks are going to probably not prefer to be called by he, she, uh, he, he, him pronouns or by she, her pronouns. Um, these days, they, they most often will prefer they, them pronouns, um, though uh, you still have some people who um, will use other uh, developed pronouns like z, zim, zir. Um, by and large, in my experience, those uh, developed pronouns are falling out of vogue. And most mm. people these days who identify as non-binary will just say, my pronouns are they and them. Um, and so that's that's what they would prefer to be called then. Um, I'll, I'll sort of leave us there with the terminology conversation because I'll say it goes on on it could go on for quite a ways. But again, I think to bring us back to the to the primary principle, um, there are a lot of possible applications of language. People may use it differently from one another, um, but it's really hard to go wrong uh, if you begin the conversation in the context of relationship by saying hey, help me understand what terms you use, what you mean by them when you use them, and how I can use my language in a way that honors you. Yeah, Greg, that, that's super helpful. Um, and, and you really kind of help um, just in that, that, that conversation there, walking through those terms, kind of help you know, break them down and kind of put them in buckets in a way um, to help people you know, better understand them. And, and I love the fact that um, you really focus on the relational aspect of um, what does this mean life on life, right? So that so to to enter in with a sense of humility, to have conversation instead of avoiding the conversation, lean into the conversation, just say, hey, I, I, I want to be respectful. I want to better understand. And as you said, most people would be happy to share their 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 feelings you know how they express themselves um and, and their preferences so i think that's important and that helps us I, I think overcome the the fear that we might mess up and therefore avoiding it altogether yeah, as opposed yeah. to treating people as people and getting to know their story and um and entering into to, to relationship which obviously building relationships we're called to make disciples it's really hard to make disciples as jesus called us to if you don't build relationships with people so i think that's absolutely key super helpful stuff now now you touched on the um the pronouns and, and some people listening in might be like, what in the world? Pronouns? I didn't even know there was a conversation about pronouns. And, and it's interesting um, because some, some Christians believe that using uh, a transgender person's preferred name and pronouns is really loving them well, right? Uh, there are people kind of in that camp. Others might believe that um, to do so is not very loving, because it's not communicating uh, what they believe the truth about how God created that person, right? And so there are these different mindsets in that. What what advice would you give um, for for people who are following Jesus about what to do in this kind of a situation with a transgender person, their preferred name, their pronouns? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the fundamental sort of uh, concept that I would want people to place all their other thoughts around is, as you were just saying, Jason, the, the principle that everything uh, comes out of uh, being in relationship with people. Um, and so I would say uh, language that 
facilitates you being in relationship with people uh, and, and within the context of that relationship, then communicating effectively to them about who Jesus is, about the way in which they are loved by Jesus uh, is always a great place to begin. Um, I think within the, within the context of that conversation about pronouns specifically, there are a couple things that are helpful to keep in mind. Uh, first is uh, when, when we talk about truth telling, it's important to recognize uh, that uh, the the idea of gender uh, in the 21st century, when people talk about gender versus sex, um, typically what we mean when we say the word gender is uh, somebody's internal uh, self-understanding um, versus uh, sex, which tends to refer to somebody's biology, somebody's chromosomes, their uh, secondary sex characteristics, and so forth. That's what the term sex tends to be about, whereas the term gender now typically gets used to mean what is a person's self-understanding? Now, uh, as Christians, uh, we, we may believe, hey, I think a person's sex and their gender ought to line up in specific kinds of ways. I think that somebody who is uh, sexed male is called by God to have a self-understanding also of themselves as male. I think somebody who's sexed female is called by God to have a self-understanding of themselves as female. It's possible to believe that that is God's ideal and to still recognize the fact that, one, not everybody's following Jesus to begin with, <laughs> and two, not everybody who is following Jesus necessarily shares all of our convictions about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and so the reality is, whether or not we think that this should be the case, the reality is that there are some people in the world who would say, hey, I, I would see my sexed body, my biological sex, as being something different from my gender identity, my sense of self-understanding. Uh, and so it is possible for me to tell the truth about that person and say, there is a person who understands themselves as female or as male or as non-binary um, without necessarily giving information about whether or not I think that is the way in which Jesus would want them to have their self-understanding of their gender identity. I can still speak honestly about a person and say, yeah, I recognize that this is their understanding of their gender identity, and I choose to honor that understanding in the way that I speak to them and about them, even if the way that I would prefer for them to express their identity is different than how they are expressing their identity. Um, and here, I think we get to the fundamental linguistic question, which is, if when I use pronouns, I want to use my pronouns as a reference to biological sex. Um, and yet when somebody else uses pronouns, they're not talking about biological sex. They're talking about gender identity, their sense of internal self-understanding. Um, then the question is, uh, whose, whose definition of what a pronoun means gets to be the winning definition? Do I enter into another community and say, here's how I choose to understand pronouns, and so I'm going to use pronouns that way with you? Or do I say, let me listen to how your community understands what pronouns mean, and let me try to use pronouns in that way so that I can speak your language, as it were. Um, and so I would say the, the cross-cultural approach, the approach that facilitates us communicating the gospel effectively to people is to figure out how the language that they're using operates. Um, there, can, there can be sometimes a, a fear that like, oh, well, but this is the way that pronouns have always operated, you know, at all times. If you use 
male pronouns, that always means you're talking about somebody's biological sex, um, to which I would just give a bit of linguistic history and context and say, that is not always what pronouns have done. Um, the, the gender that we have in language, um, in fact, uh, is not always gendered in relation to the, the sexed body of the person. Um, for instance, uh, through the course of the Old and New Testament, uh, we see uh, male pronouns, female pronouns, and neuter pronouns used to describe God in his various persons. Um, why? Because uh, the, the, well, specifically the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the term for the spirit in, in uh, Hebrew uh, is feminine. Uh, the term for the spirit in Greek is neuter. And so the pronouns that those terms get assigned are mm -hmm. feminine and neuter pronouns accordingly. Um, you see passages in Greek uh, like, uh, if anyone causes one of these little children to stumble, um, and the term for little children there, paideon, is a neuter term. And so uh, the children are referenced not as he or she, but as it, which is not meant to be an indication that the children are neither male nor female. It's right. simply a grammatical implication. Here's what pronouns do in that language at that time. Um, and so I would say when we want to talk in the 21st century to people who have a self-understanding of their gender identity, and the thing that they mean when they use pronouns is... This is me using the pronoun that refers to my self-understanding. You don't have to agree with my self-understanding in order to recognize that that is my self-understanding. Um, I, so I worked on a paper recently where I was trying to understand um, what's constructive to do with pronouns and how do trans folks hear the use of pronouns from other people. And so I specifically asked trans people, when somebody uses your pronouns, um, what do you hear them saying? Do you hear them saying, I approve of the way that your sex body and your gender identity do or don't line up? Um, or do you simply hear them saying, I recognize that this is what you feel is your self-understanding of gender, whether or not I feel in theological agreement with that. Um, and uh, all of my interviewees for that project said the latter. They said, no, if somebody uses my pronouns, I don't take that as meaning they're giving a thumbs up stamp of approval on every way in which I choose to express my gender identity. But what I hear them saying is, I have listened to what you have said. I understand that this is what you feel your experience of the world is. And I want to honor that. And I want to stay in relationship with you, even in places where we disagree. Um, and I think that is a worthwhile message to communicate. Uh, and it is a message that is indeed true and worth saying. Yeah, Greg, that, that, that's good because I know that, um, you know, some people would, would look at that conversation and, and feel like, well, somehow we're, you know, condoning or affirming or, or whatever. And, and they're fearful of doing that, right? Um, and because they want to hold up the truth, you know, the, the truth of, of Christ, in the way that they perceive that and the way that they can kind of engage someone in in a conversation around that. But then there's this uh, kind of, you know, missiological view, right? Like, hey, we are, we're, we're looking at how can we build bridges and build relationships um, with, with people. And so just as, as we would go to a, another country and not insist that everyone... <laughs> you know, start dressing like us and, and using English, you know, as, as the language and try to communicate in that, we're going to look and try to find out what, what their customs are, 
what their language is, what their understandings are, so we can build those relationships, have those conversations, and then introduce them to to Jesus. Is is that kind of more what we're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that to say, look, here's the here's how I understood language when I met Jesus. You know, I met Jesus in English, and so will you. Gosh darn it, uh, <laughs> is I think to miss out on the opportunity uh, to listen to a community long enough to say. How are they using language and how can I translate the message of the gospel into words that are going to communicate maximally truthfully to them who Jesus is, the depth of his love for them? That's good. That, that's, that's excellent, Greg. Very well. Well, man, this has been a robust conversation um, for, for sure. Lots of good things that you've offered up for us. We could talk for, for much longer. Um, your your uh, wealth of knowledge and your personal experience, your academic work, um, just how you live your life as someone who's uh, following Jesus and, and honoring God and growing and learning and, and taking others on, on your journey with you. So appreciate that. I do want to give you an opportunity or two opportunities as we kind of close down this conversation. First, um, we've talked about a lot of things. You have the ears right now of pastors and ministry leaders who are listening in. Is Is there anything that you would like to leave with them? Maybe, maybe something you want to emphasize that we covered, maybe something that we didn't cover, but something that you feel will be valuable to pastors and ministry leaders? I think the the number one thing I would say uh, is that the best thing you can possibly do uh, when you're interacting with somebody in, in your congregation, in your family, in your community, uh, who is uh, LGBTQ or same-sex attracted or pick, pick, your, pick your term, um, when you're interacting with those folks, the best thing that you can possibly do is direct them to the person of Jesus mm. um, and entrust the specifics of their journey to Jesus. I think there, there is often a temptation for those of us who are in ministry to want to take our own judgment and substitute it for the judgment of the person that we're talking to and say, I'm, I know what you should be doing. So let me just do it for you. Let me just, <laughs> let me just stick myself into your life. And, and, and I think that that can be good and helpful to some degree to, to help somebody understand like, well, here's how I would think about your situation. The trouble is um, that if the thing that Jesus is calling us to uh, is is a really tricky life, is, is in some ways a life of sexual self-denial. Um, and I would say, I hope that all of us, gay and straight and everything else, are living out our, our obedience to Jesus in a life of sexual self-denial in some way. Because if you're not ever saying no to anything with regard to your sexual orientation, you might be saying yes to a few too many things. Um, but uh, but if if the thing that 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 you believe Jesus is going to call somebody to is a lifetime of sexual self-denial, they're not going to be able to walk that journey for a lifetime on the basis of somebody else's faith. Mm. Uh, somebody else's faith might carry me for a couple months, maybe a couple of years, but it's not going to carry me through a lifetime of celibacy with Jesus. The only thing that's going to carry me through a lifetime with cel- of celibacy with Jesus is the person of Jesus himself. Um and so I think the best thing we can possibly do is keep redirecting, keep inviting people back to Jesus and trusting that if it is indeed Jesus that they meet, um, that he will guide them well going forward. Yeah, so good. That's so good. Love that wisdom. And then also, if if people listening in, Greg, want to uh, connect with you, um, learn more about the work that you're doing, what's the best way that they can do that? 
Oh, let's see. Uh, well, you could go to my website, uh, which is gregcoles.com or gregorycoles.com, uh, so that whichever name you feel like calling me, you'll find me there. Um, that, that's one way to do it. Um, uh, you could read either of my books uh, if you think they might be helpful to you. Uh, the more recent one is uh, called No Longer Strangers. It came out just last month, I believe. Um, and then my earlier book, uh, which came out in 2017, is called Single Gay Christian, a title which leaves very little to the imagination. <laughs> um, I, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm biased to think that both books have some merit, although I would say there's better books. So, you know, if, you're, if your reading is limited, you should probably find somebody else's better books first. But th- those are a couple ways to find me. Excellent, Greg. Man, I have so enjoyed our conversation together. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for speaking into this um, conversation and and just helping all of us as we're navigating, as we're seeking to, to honor God, um, but also really seeking to to build relationships with people and, and point them to Jesus. So certainly appreciate you making the time to be with us today, Greg. This has been a treat. Thanks for having me, Jason. Awesome. God bless you. You too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.